You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 3800 Marlton Pike. For more information, check out circleofhope.net. I go to Common Grounds Coffee in Oakland. Represent Oakland, yeah? Uh, and uh, I go there a lot, and they, they have a tip jar that has a pole. Great way to get more tips. Ask a really important question in your tip jar, like, when's the right time to get the Christmas decorations out? After Halloween or after Thanksgiving? This is an important debate. Let's do the poll right now. When is it inappropriate? After Halloween? Raise your hand. No takers. Uh, okay, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand with them. I love the Christmas time, so let's bring it on. Uh, okay, after Thanksgiving, are you allowed to decorate for Christmas? If you even decorate. Okay, but, okay, so I guess there's a right answer. Um, but I think, I know, I, I, I'm, I'm keeping my hand raised with the people that would put, I put my money in the Thanksgiving jar. It's ridiculous, honestly. But, um, yeah, and I don't, I don't always tip. But when there's a question that I, you know, that I must, um, you should always tip. Go to, go to, go to Oakland right now and give them a tip. Go, go tell them what the truth is. But I think a lot of people want a longer Christmas time. I think they want to extend this ritual season. It, everyone agrees that it, it, it's something that the culture does together better than, than almost anything else. Uh, of course, there are people that don't celebrate Christmas, but even my Jewish friends get excited about of some of them get excited about like Christmas time because it's like it actually is like the most wonderful time of the year. Like people are jolly and stuff, and there are lights and lights are beautiful. You know, I, I think that the real reason we're going to get it out in October or even you know before Halloween when everyone's already bought their candy, CVS is already switching over to the Christmas candy because it's mostly about uh, consumer mass. Christmas time, Christmas is consumer mass. It's the time to buy. But our, but our alternative to that is Advent. We have a ritual season that predates any buying or electric lights. We are getting ready for Jesus' birth. And I'm telling you now because I want you to be ready to be ready. It's like a, the ritual season begins in two weeks. And, and we even have an extra week. After. Sometimes it starts right after Thanksgiving, but it starts the following one, December 2nd. That's the first Sunday of Advent. And uh, I think we need this type of ritual. And we can, we can do an unshaded version of this ritual expression because we really need that outward expression of something going on in the inside. We need the drama. We need to dial up the intensity of the story. Because in order to feel something fully, we often need to do something. Like I was saying at the beginning of the meeting, we have ladders back there because apparently we need to climb ladders. You're going to have a time for worship later in which you're going to find out how you can do that. Our hearts need to express. They can't just be impressed. Love for God needs to be real and acted out somehow. One of the reasons we have a meeting like this. It's an opportunity to act it out together. The, the, word, the old word for what we do in a, a meeting like this is liturgy. And it literally means the work of the people. We are doing the work of the people. You are the people. We are the people of God, trying to express our love and our connection to God, not just in words. Because words aren't enough, I don't think. You know, you gotta, you got to show at least as much as you tell. 
Jeremiah has been helping us to do this, especially when it comes to our lament. He was a prophet in the 6th century uh, when the people of Israel were going through a lot of trouble. He saw what was going to happen, and God appointed him as his people's guide. It was Jeremiah's job to walk them into the abyss. And the abyss was the Babylonian Empire coming from the north and destroying everything that they held dear, and even taking a bunch of them off into captivity. Jeremiah wants to wake people up. He wants them to fully experience the loss and understand why it's happening. He didn't want to survive, he didn't want them to survive this disaster without letting it change their relationship with God. And we know that that's possible. We I think I think you know intuitively that this grief that you've experienced can kind of numb you out or it breaks you in, in, into something new. There's an option there. You've been through a lot and you just you you've been through something where you just didn't have it in you to really let it happen to you, and you, you, you kind of close yourself off from it. I, th- I think everyone has done this. It's just a natural coping mechanism. Sometimes we just like kind of close ourselves off. Sometimes we distract ourselves. Sometimes we anesthetize ourselves with some substance or some pleasure, some fleeting thing that supposedly makes us feel better, and we, and we avoid the, the pain of what's happening to us. And then it doesn't change us. Pain is not all so... Uh, easy to say, this is from God. In Jeremiah's case, he had discerned, yeah, this is from God. This is what, what's happening to you, people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. This is God's expression of disappointment to you. You need to change, and he's going to have to do something drastic, like let these Babylonians come in. And so Jeremiah's job was to lead them into this and say, don't them out to this. Do you see what's happening? Don't tell some fake story about some other God or some other thing. This is what's happening. God is making this happen, and you need to pay attention because you need to change your relationship with God. But he doesn't just say it. He does, he does say a lot. <laughs> Jeremiah is this long book in the Bible. I read it uh, all the way through in preparation for these talks that I wanted to give you. And it was like I had to keep trudging through because he just kept coming back with the same kind of expression. I mean, it was new, it was colorful, it was a different metaphor, but it's still like, yo, this is terrible. You know, and how, how long can you do that, especially in a concentrated time? But that was Jeremiah's job for his, like, his whole life. He got assigned to be God's prophet when he was very young, and he did it his whole life. He, he was the prophet of, of these kings that spanned a, a generation. And all the way through... Uh, the, this captivity, because what happened is the Babylonians came in and they took out a bunch of the elite people and they stayed in captivity for 70 years. And Jeremiah was still around when they were coming back. At least that's how the story goes. So, but, so he wrote a lot about this. He wrote a lot about what was happening, a lot about his feeling, a lot about what God was saying to him. And a lot of it was very similar. He kept repeating himself. He kept doing like that little girl was doing, you know. I'm moving on. I'm moving on. But Jeremiah was doing it like, yo, this is happening. The Babylonians are coming. Stop trying to get out of this. Stop trying to make alliances with Egypt. Stop trying to uh, worship other gods that are going to make make this better for you. It's not going to be better. 
just kept saying it over and over again in lots of uh, brilliant poetry, but the subject matter was not necessarily beautiful. Some of it's really dark, in fact. However, he didn't just say it. He, he showed it. He was a street performer. He was a, a, a performance artist, maybe. And God had him do these very specific things to show the people, you know, that to have this kind of ritual expression, no, this is what's going to happen. Maybe you weren't listening to me, but, but are you, are you going to pay attention to this? When I do this thing, are you going to notice it? And I want to walk us through a bunch of, because it happened a bunch, and they are so, I love how specific they are. They're like things that really happened. This guy did these really wild things, and there's all these, like, even verifiable, at least places and people that he was doing it with. So it's not just like a tall tale, you know? What's happening with Jeremiah and the stories that, he, that he's telling, they seem very real. They seem like an eyewitness account, like a little journal entry. I think that some of this stuff really happened. So I want to walk through as much of it as I can. Um, it happened, you know, the, the, Jeremiah's in the Old Testament. Like I said, he's very verbose. So some of these stories are kind of long. Like I'm going to show you, uh, you know, a couple of screens like this one. I got it, Tom. Okay. All right. Um, you know, I'm going I'm to read you some stuff like this because I want you to see what Jeremiah is showing. Um, and you can imagine him doing it. So I'll start with this one. This is what the Lord said to me. This is Jeremiah 13. Go and buy a linen belt. By the way, linen belt is a euphemism for loincloth, which is an old school underwear. All right, I like that part of it. Very earthy. Go and buy a linen belt and put it around your waist, but do not let it touch water. So I bought a belt, as the Lord directed, and I put it around my waist. Then the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the belt you bought and are wearing around your waist and go now to Parath and hide it there in a crevice in the rocks. So I went and I hid it at Parath, as the Lord told me. Many days later, the Lord said to me, Go now to Pereth and get the belt I told you to hide there. So I went to Pereth and I dug up the belt and took it from the place where it had hid I had hidden it. But now it was ruined and completely useless. I love like th the three times, like he's really doing something with God, you know, where it's like we're talking about like, yo, go get the underwear that you buried. You know, like this is like, and it's in this specific place. I'm going to do something with this. And this is what, this is what God does. This is what God is showing. Then the word of the Lord came to me. This is what the Lord says. In the same way, I will ruin the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts and go after other gods to serve and worship them, will be like this belt, completely useless. For as a belt is bound around the waist, so I bound all the people of Israel and all the people of Judah to me, declares the Lord, to my people for my renown and praise and honor. But... They have not listened. And now, they're dirty underwear. Yeah, that's, the, that's pretty evocative, you know? Like, yo, you are you are tidy whities buried in the ground. That's what I think of you. Like, Someone translated that wrong. <laughs> so, so, you know, I, I, you know I, don't, I don't pretend to know all of the uh, ancient Near Eastern culture around loincloths and belts and all that, but there's a lot there, you know, that we don't totally understand. But it's an evocative image. You know, he's trying to show you something. Yo, if you weren't listening, this is what it's like. See this? You see this? This is what it's like. 
he does it a few other times. I'm gonna, I want to keep going through. Um, oh, in general, Jeremiah doesn't marry anyone. He, God tells him that he's not supposed to marry anyone, and he's not supposed to ever go to a funeral, and he's not supposed to ever go to a wedding. And the reason is that his life is going to be a sign of the the destruction that's going to happen. Y'all, there's going to come a time when you're not even going to have time to bury people. They're going to be left out for vultures. You know, so no no funerals for Jeremiah. And no, you're not going to be able to get married. You're not going to be able to have a feast and be happy. There will be no sounds of joy and gladness. So Jeremiah doesn't get to go to any weddings either. Uh, I'm, I'm walking through him because, because he's doing it all the time. He's not just telling, he's showing. Uh, in Jeremiah 19, he shatters an earthenware jar demonstrating that God will shatter Jerusalem. And it's interesting. He's like, go get a jar. See the jar? Crash! You know, like, you like this jar, man? Boom! It has that kind of, like, he's trying to break something in us, too. Here's one I want to look at. Uh, oh, no, I don't know. I don't have time to look at this one as much, I don't think. No, I do, I do have time for this one. Okay. Um, so he goes and, and looks to buy this piece of land in Jeremiah 32. It's called, it's called the Field of Ananoth, and they actually think they found it. Can you see in that picture? This kind of rocky land that, that Jeremiah was told to buy. And it's, it's, I wanted to read it to you because it's just such great detail. Like, it's like, this is how you buy a piece of land in, in the ancient Near East, for one. You know, like, this is how you do it. And it's all, like, certified and everything. So check it out. Maybe you can get into it. This is, a, this is an expression that the Judah, the people of Judah will not be uh, able to own their land. Oh no, wait a sec, wait a sec. No, this is, this is, I, I, I jumped around. This is actually a promise that they will be able to return to the land. You know, that, so we're, we have this story where they're getting taken out of the land and then also Jeremiah gives them comfort that they're coming back. And this is in Jeremiah 32 where they get to, they get to come back. So God says, hey, it's time. Go buy that land as a symbol of, of the return of my people. So, so here it is. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is at Ananoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. There's a whole story there, but we'll, we'll leave it for another time. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field, please. It is at Ananoth, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right possession, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that it was the word of the Lord. See, he had gotten his vision. I think, I think this guy's going to come and tell me. My, my uncle's going to say, hey, come buy this field. And then he actually came and bought this field. That's wild. So must, this must be from God. So I bought the field, which was at Ananoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and weighed out the silver for him. This is, this is the parts that I like. Like, how much did it cost? 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, and I called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scales. Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, in the sight of Hamel, my uncle's son, and in the sight of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase before all the Jews who were sitting in the court of the guard. You know, there's no, there's no like, zoning board. So, you know, this is how it's done. You've got to get a lot of people to see this so that the, the ownership of this land is well established, that this belongs to Jeremiah. 
And I commanded Baruch in the presence, saying, in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase, and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar, and they may last so that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, house and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. You know, it's not it's not you know, they have this this story of destruction and doom, but there's this little book of comfort right in the middle of, of, of Jeremiah. And, it, and that actually speaks to, like, the weirdness of how the book is put together because it's not all in some chronological order. That's why I was confused. Because right in the middle, there's this part where it's saying, no, and you're going to get to come back. Check it out. I'm buying a piece of land. This is the first piece of land that you're going to return to. And look, it's actually in a place called Ananoth where you could go and visit. I would love to go. Anybody been to the field of Ananoth? I don't know if you're on all the Bible tours. If you go to if you go to the, the Holy Land, they, they, there, are, there are people that will take you around to places in the Bible, and uh, they uh, they take you there. I guess or someone's been there. I, for, I I should have put this slide first because I wanted to say before we got to the comfort, this is a, a great picture of Jeremiah that I like. He's wearing a yoke, and I'm not going to read the whole story on this one, but he goes into King Zedekiah, who's who's one of the kings. Um, at the, at the, that is trying to resist being taken over by Babylon. And he says, this yoke represents the yoke of Babylon. You're going to be in a yoke too. You're, you're going to be the, the kind of the patsy to this empire. You're not going to be your own king. You're going to be a yoked king, like a beast of burden. And then uh, Jeremiah's false prophet uh, not Jeremiah's, Zedekiah's false prophet, Ananias, comes in and he breaks the yoke. So it's this, it, it's this real drama that all of the prophets kind of know to this, oh yeah, boom, breaking that yoke. And so Jeremiah goes off, oh dang, that didn't work, he broke my yoke. So he comes back with a yoke of iron. <laughs> and says, try to break this, jerk! Because <laughs> this this is what it's going to be like. The, the, the symbol of this, this, this kind of drama, this, this kind of outward expression gets people to pay attention. One, uh, a couple more stories and then one more longer one because I like the evidence again. Uh, this, this is a fun one in Jeremiah 35. I'm sorry, walking through all these little expressions of, of what Jeremiah had to say, these times where he was like acting something out. Uh, Jeremiah offers wine to the Rechabites, but he knows that the Rechabites had taken a vow because they're their great-grandfather had vowed never to drink wine. And all of the ancestors followed him. And it was this whole little tribe of people that were sober. We don't drink wine. We're Rechabites. And, and Jeremiah offers it to them, saying, here, you want some wine? Because he knows they're going to say no. Check it out. The Rechabites, they know how to keep their vow. What's up with you, Israel? You can't, you can't keep your vows? These people just made, like, this is like a private vow about, about alcohol. And, and they're keeping it because they're faithful to their ancestors. What's your problem? I like that. I like all these, these expressions. One more, because there's evidence again. Check that seal out. That's the seal of Sariah, son of and the son of Neriah. They, they, they found this, this little piece of clay that they would use to seal letters, like maybe a wax or something, or some other clay that would this is the this is like a signature. And and this, this is connected to Jeremiah 51, 59 through 64. The message which Jeremiah the prophet commanded, Sariah, the son of Neriah, the grandson of Messiah, 
when he went with Zedekiah, the king of Judah, to Babylon in the fourth year of his reign. Masariah was quartermaster. So Jeremiah wrote in a single scroll all the calamity which would come upon Babylon. That is, all those words which have been written concerning Babylon. Then Jeremiah said to Sarai, As soon as you come to Babylon, then see that you read all these words aloud and say, You, O Lord, have promised concerning this place to cut it off. He's talking about Babylon. Babylon served its purpose, and it's going to go down too. And it does. The Persian Empire conquers it. Um, you, O Lord, have promised these things. Again, to, this place to cut it off so that there will be nothing dwelling in it, whether man or beast, but it will be, be a perpetual desolation. And as soon as you finish reading this scroll, you will tie a stone to it and throw it into the middle of the Euphrates, that's the big river in their territory, and say, just so shall Babylon sink down and not rise again because of the calamity that I am going to bring upon her, and they will become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah. This is like the end of the book. This kind of, yo, I've been on Team Babylon this whole time, but i got to get you to do one more thing. You need to go to Babylon. You read a scroll and, and, and open it up. Like, and just read it to the, to the land of Babylon. You know, as soon as you get there, as soon as you see the Euphrates, I don't care if anyone's listening. Read this scroll. Put it back in there. Tie a rock to it and throw it in the river so it sinks down. You know, it's this, it's this dramatic expression. Because G Jeremiah really wants to wake people up to what is, what's really happening. Are you seeing this? Prophets don't only show us the future. They aren't just seeing what will happen. They're opening our eyes to a deeper reality right now. There's meaning to what's happening right now. And I think this applies to us, not just the ancient Israelites. Our ordinary actions can have purpose beyond what is plain. Even, even more than seeing the future world, prophets see uh, like a better world, another world that, that is, is starting to happen right now. Jesus is the, is the utmost prophet for us. He, he comes to show us a new way and even to enact it. All the other prophets before him only looked uh, in, with longing towards this vision of another world that God had given them, but Jesus comes and makes it possible. Everything that he does has meaning. Every story he tells, every person he heals is an expression of the kingdom of God breaking into our present reality. Jesus shows us that another world is possible, and then he dies as the ultimate expression of how distinct that different world is from the one that we're living in. And then God raises him from the dead, vindicates his supposed loss so that we too can walk into that different world. The kingdom of God is stronger than any threat, even death. Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection is really God's ultimate show. Hey, this is what I've been talking about all along. This is the full expression even of what Jeremiah said so long ago. So we now, are expressing and showing what is actually happening. It starts just in our own lives, paying attention. Oh, this is happening in here, and I need to put it out. But also, God is still happening. We're still doing something. We're trying to express that new world, that, that alternative vision 
to the way things are. And so, we too can create these kinds of acts. I, I spent so much time telling you about Jeremiah and the yoke, the underwear, and the field that he bought, because we too can have that kind of expression, that kind of showing, hey, this is what it's like. Our friend Shane Claiborne uh, likes to tell this story about uh, a time that, that was really, really a really fun way that they did this. Um, word, it happened in Knoxville in 2007. Word had begun to spread that a group of white supremacists, including members of the KKK, were converging in Knoxville, Tennessee, holding a rally in a park downtown. It was in the news and the papers, and all the locals were pretty upset by the public display of racism and hatred. Even though many of the folks connected to the hate groups were coming from other states, they had somehow obtained a permit uh, and pub to publicly proclaim their hate-filled message of white power. But they had no idea what was coming. A group of locals had decided either to cower away in fear or to fight fire with fire. Instead, they decided to meet hatred with humor. They began to organize a counter-protest, but not your typical counter-protest, not the kind where you just kind of hold your signs and say, no, no, no. They're much more creative than that. They, they wanted to show this alternative world. They showed up with an army of clowns, stilts and unicycles and red noses, and they far outnumbered the white supremacists. In fact, they stole the show. The clowns seemed to have slightly missed the message of white power. They, they began by yelling, white flower, white flower pulling out bags of flour and throwing at each other, like an, like an all-white, uh, uh, what's that, holy. That, 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 that's the, 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 the Hindu celebration in India where they throw all the colors at them, but it's all white, you know? And, uh, and they, they created a hysterical cloud of dust. And uh, the, Shane says that needlessly to say, the spectacle quickly hijacked all the attention of the media and bystanders. It may have even distracted some of the haters themselves, and they were hard to ignore. Before long, uh, one of the clowns pointed out that they had messed up the message. It was not white flour like ground up wheat. It was uh, white flowers like daisies. So they dusted themselves off and were, were they were conveniently met by a mob of new clowns that had tons of white Flowers. Enthusiastically, they ran through the streets and giving away these white flowers. White flower, white flower, white flower, giving it to everyone. But then um, uh, the same clown came up and said, no, I, I still don't think we've got it right. It's not white flowers like daisies. Uh, we got the message wrong. And they said, oh, oh, it's, it's about power. It's, it's wife power. You can put the slide up there, uh, Tom. A mob, of, a mob of clowns decked out in wedding dresses came out of nowhere and whisked some of the men from the crowd in their arms and let everyone in a new chair, a new cheer. Wife power. Wife power it was. I love this story. Uh, he wrote it down on Red Letter Christians, which is a website that thinks about this kind of alternative world that we're making with Jesus. I think it's an example to us of how we can start from this 
foundation we have in Christ to engage the evil in the world with creativity like Jeremiah did. We don't just have to be outraged. Condemning evil with our words only isn't enough. In fact, if we don't get creative and, and, and we just get stuck in arguing with people we disagree with, we're actually not going to reveal very much. There are no glimpses of a different world in an entrenched argument. You know, when Jeremiah was in Zedekiah's court, he could have just shouted at Ananias, No, this is what God said. No, this is what God said. No, and, you know, Jeremiah has to break the cycle somehow, so he comes in with a yoke. Well, what do you think of this? This is something different. And, you know, Ananias played the part, broke the yoke. That was pretty good profiting for, uh, even for the false prophet Ananias. But shouting matches rarely produce transformation. I found that to be true. And I think that shouting matches are more and more common. I think that's that's another uh, way that uh, consumer culture is, is hijacking our, our possible opportunities for transformation. Because shouting matches don't achieve any transformation, but they do get people to buy uh, front row seats to the match, to pay for their cable news, or to uh, even support their political candidate that's just going to parrot their views. One of Circle of Hope's proverbs is, people should be skeptical of our message if it does not originate from a community that demonstrates the love of Christ. Emphasis on the demonstrate. Circle of Hope, of hope itself is a, is, is a sort of sign act. We really lean into this 24-7 body we are a 24-7 demonstration of this other world that is possible. We don't always succeed at it at every moment, but it is our, our basic strategy that we need to show it and not just say it. We are a, we are a foundation of love out of which all kinds of, gender, of demonstration has been generated. You know, simple stuff like caring for each other's children and bringing someone a meal or helping someone find a job. All of those are expressions of what we say we believe. But we also have expressions like uh, last week we, were, we raised $4,000 for the community bail fund through our Circle Mobilizing Because Black Lives Matter team. Yesterday at 2212 South Broad Street, we were doing our completely radical baby goods exchange, and it even got so rowdy that the police got called. You know, that, that, sounds, that sounds like we're doing something. I wish the police hadn't been called, but it was, but it, you know, something was happening. There were tons of people there, and uh, uh, it all worked out in the end. No one was arrested, but uh, it, 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 it's, it's pretty wild, you know, what God is doing. You're very intrigued by that story. I'll tell you more later. Our goal is to show at least as much as we tell. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect drop-down at circleofhope.net.